0: What's good? It's your boy, Justin. Hope everything is well with y'all. I want to thank you for bearing with me over the past few weeks. I know I haven't been putting out episodes as frequently as I would have liked, but I promise I have a good reason for that. On top of studying for classes, on top of research, on top of clinical stuff, all that, I'm actually studying for my step one, my first board exam. Coming up at the end of January slash beginning of February Uh, for those of you that don't know what step one is a lot of people consider it one of the biggest exams in your medical career and so I apologize in advance if in getting ready for that I'm not as consistent over the next couple of months putting out episodes as I would like I'll do my best but with dedicated coming up and then clerkships right after that I apologize in advance if episodes are not as consistent as I would like and as you all expect So thanks again for tuning in. Thank you for supporting me this whole time. And yeah, let's get into it. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Med Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Oliveira. And here on the show, we highlight the example of astounding physicians of color with the hopes of inspiring you, all the listeners, to pursue careers in medicine. I'm here joined today by Dr. Kadir. Dr. Kadir, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Justin. This is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited to have you on the show. we have been working. I've done a couple things with you over the course of the past year, um, but I'm really, really excited to hear your story and talk to you a little bit.
1: I'm, I'm looking forward
0: to it. Awesome. So by way of introduction, Dr. Rubai, Ricky Kadir, is a board-certified family medicine doc currently based in the Bronx, New York. A Bangladeshi immigrant, Dr. Kadir was raised in Queens and earned his undergraduate degree in biology from Stony Brook University. He went on to earn his MD from the American University of the Caribbean School of Medicine and complete his family medicine residency at the Conmu Memorial Medical Center in rural southwestern Pennsylvania. Currently, Dr. Kadir is heavily involved clinically and academically at Montefiore Medical Center where he serves as Assistant Medical Director in Education and Advocacy at the Bronx Health Collective and Assistant Professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. His passion for both advocacy and diversifying the medical workforce led him to co-found the South Bronx Community Health Leaders, a pre-health pathway program for underrepresented students seeking careers in medicine. And he remains strongly committed to supporting anti-racist spaces and achieving equity in the workplace. Dr. Kadir, how did that sound?
1: That sounded like a lot of words. <laughs> but I, I,
0: thank you, thank you. But
1: no, I thank you for that. Um, it's always, It's one of those things where um, you, for me, I'm just being for myself. I always like don't want to like kind of shout yourself up uh, or shout yourself out as as much as maybe you should. And I think part of that is like like how you I was raised as like a first gen immigrant. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, thanks thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it
0: course of course um so like I said I'm really excited to get into it I know that you have an awesome story and I'm really excited to share it with everybody so we'll start all the way at the beginning we're going all the way back
1: there yeah that's no, great um <laughs> all the way back um I think the earliest so I mean like my family has moved a lot so like you know um as you mentioned where my, my parents are Bangladeshi um so for those who are, are not familiar um you know it's like a south asian country right next to india has a lot of history um with like a very recent like war for independence i would say like 1970s and so uh still a relatively like new country and within that context my family left in 19 in like the mid 80s um we set up shop in california and actually in la for a couple of years like so where my dad is a physician that's kind of like where he was looking for work, um, we, we kind of established some roots there for a couple of years um, when I was very young, like my younger brother was born there and then we moved east coast and then we've been there pretty much, um, I've been here pretty much my entire life, um, grew up in New York City and moved several times. Um, but you know, some of my earliest memories are just <laughs> moving around in so many different places because my dad was like doing residencies, then he changed his, like, you know, what he initially had wanted to do. He actually started off as a um, a pediatrician at, and he did his residency at Lincoln, at Lincoln Hospital in, in in the South Bronx. And this is like actually something I didn't think about till I was much older. Um, but then he switched and I didn't know why uh, at the time. I'm going to maybe talk about it later, but he, then he switched to do general IM. And then he did like fellowships. And so what this basically got to us like moving, <laughs> like moving. Like I want to say from when I was four up until basically I was in like
0: seventh or eighth grade. Like we were moving like either every year or every other year, um, constantly. So can you talk a little bit, he was trained in Bangladesh and then he came to the U S yeah. So what was that like yeah. to redo the training and all of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that was tough. I, that's one of the things where our system sometimes like uh, I'm, I'm talking about like the American system right. uh, doesn't, doesn't respect like a lot of training from outside the country. And so like, you know, you would think like if you're an established doctor and are in, like, you know, you've been working that you're, you're okay. And then you just have to, you can like transition here, but unfortunately that's not how it works. And so like, yeah, you have to do residency over you have to take like a lot of exams over. So it was definitely an extra level of stress for, for my dad. And then, You know, I kind of delayed him starting as like an attending for a few years. Um, And I think the other part of it, to his journey as well, uh, my family's journey, because my mom also came over with him as well. They were the first in their, either of their families to leave home, Uh, not just like home in general, like the, you know, Bangladesh and then coming to the US, uh, like many immigrants at that time, um, they were the first to really do it here um and like establish themselves raise families and now we are the product of that and so I think that's something that I've, I'm just starting to unpack like a lot of people in my generation and probably like you know my younger brother he's five years younger than me so he's like in a different generation than even I am even within like I'm like in the upper millennial and then there's like the younger millennial generation right and it's like completely different things like pokemon was something big for him it wasn't for me so uh you know so it's like things like that um that you realize as you as you get older um and so i that's i'm unpacking a lot of this stuff like with uh my family coming that young and like really trying to make it it's it's um
0: yeah it's a good it's a it's a really interesting story that a lot of immigrant families have and then with your dad being a physician but still like like the intersection of him being a physician, but still navigating healthcare as an immigrant family, would you say that that was positive? Was it negative? Could you talk about that a little bit, like your experience with the healthcare system?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because I think I want to say for the most part, I always grew up feeling like it was like a positive experience, like especially when I was younger, much younger. Um, other than like you know going to a pediatrician and not wanting to get shots, like every other kid. I I still
0: don't want to do that.
1: Uh, Yeah. And I still don't. Yeah. And I think many of us even in adulthood exactly still don't want to do that. I think um I yeah, I think it was a generally positive view of of being a doctor of of going in of the healthcare system itself. Um and I think part of that was because my dad was a doctor for Mm -hmm. sure. But I think also we were very lucky in that you know, both of them were relatively healthy when I was much younger, and I didn't have to, like, you know, they didn't have like these major um, chronic illnesses or right. or things that happened that led us to like encounter the healthcare system over and over, like a lot of people um, do right. have done or or do now um, when it comes to their families. And so I want to say, like, I think that was part of the. Re- those are a couple of probably the major reasons why that was how I viewed it, like as a as a
0: child. For sure, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to pursue medicine? Um, were you pressured from your parents? Did you kind of come to it on your own? What did that look like? And what was their reaction? Your family's reaction?
1: Yeah, no. It's funny you say that. It's like, do you feel like <laughs> there there is a lot of stories that you've heard, or you hear about people being pressured to become a yeah. doctor, especially like second generation? Is that why yeah. you're? Um, and I'm just curious. I mean, yeah, I'm curious what where where you're coming from.
0: So my <laughs> my experience <laughs> is that so my dad is a is a surgeon and growing up he told my brother and I, you have three choices for your career. You can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can work on Wall Street. And that <laughs> those are the three options. <laughs> I feel like that, oh. that's something that I hear a lot with a lot of Caribbean families, a lot of immigrant families, a lot of first gen families.
1: No, that's um yeah that's amazing because that was like literally except the wall street banker stuff i i I don't even think my dad saw that as a viable option (laughs) my family my mom as well yeah it was just doctor or lawyer um and and engineer and engineer because there was a lot of there's a lot of um those are like the three like really prestigious or at least it was at that time you know like the three prestigious jobs for people right um in and because and i think engineer because there was just like a lot of our, our family and friends who are also like engineers and going to like mit and and schools like that and so they're like okay you can do either one of those three but yeah it was it was always an expectation um on like especially when we were younger mm-hmm. um and i think one of the things that happens with immigrant family i, I don't want to generalize everyone's experience right so I'm, right, i'll right. speak more specifically to mine right but maybe some of resonates with you and other people who are listening but i think a lot of um what what a lot of what that expectation was coming from was that they wanted a a better life for their kids and i think like you know my dad um my mom and my dad both but i think specifically my dad like you know the bangladesh is at the time it's, it's much more economically like independent now but at the time it was it's it was definitely one of like the poorer countries in the world uh, again, relatively new country, right? Like if it was independent in 1971, by 1985, it's only been a country for like less right. than two decades. Right. And so, um, you know, kind of still finding its own identity. And for my parents, what they saw as success was like, you need to succeed by making more money than us, like financially successful, right? That's kind of right. like what was there. I did, and, and that's also because that's like where, what they didn't have, like, especially my dad, like, you know, right. they didn't have that growing up. And so it makes sense. Um, and so part of that, the pathway for, or the expectation of becoming a doctor was that was like, you will be financially stable. Um, and definitely was, I wasn't, myself wasn't sure. Uh, like, it was just like something I also went along with. I was like, yeah, I want to be a doctor because it seems like a cool job like my dad's a doctor and a lot of our family friends was just because of like our circles were for other were doctors and I was like okay it doesn't seem that bad um and I think as I got older I and I didn't exactly have my I didn't know for a long time why I wanted to be a doctor and like what was it that I wanted to do in this field and you're going through like pre-med and like mcats and then like med school and it's like a constant feel like a constant uphill Mm-hmm. uh swing where like you see you're looking around your colleagues are like oh yeah i like you know they were they knew like they wanted to be a surgeon from like pre-med or they, they wanted to, they wanted to do like whatever it was like cardiology and they're having no issues like doing this work and so i didn't have the space really to like talk about a lot of these things at that time because part of it was because i didn't want to um I didn't want my parents to like feel bad like or feel like they were pressuring me, even if that was a little bit of the case, because a lot of that was just like really cultural. Right. Right. They're looking around their kids, their kids are becoming doctors and lawyers and this and that. And like, you know, you you even right. though it's not a comparisons game, it's what ends up happening.
0: Right. OK, for sure. And then so I, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying and especially the part about like kind of just doing it to do it for a long part, a, a long um, part of the journey. And then for me personally, it wasn't until I started studying public health that I kind of found like my personal reason for doing it. So what was it for you? Like, at what point did you find that? Um,
1: yeah. And this actually probably sounds strange to people, but I, even when I was in resident, I started residency in family medicine, I still wasn't sure that this was like the right field for me. I'm, I'm being honest. Like, I think yeah. what, what made, what changed things for me was towards the end of medical school. Um, you know, I was doing rotations, and we had a really close friend who who suddenly just like he suddenly died. Like he, it was um, my friend Peter, and we were all we had a group of us that you know went to school on on at the on St. Martin the island uh, where my medical school was, and then we came to New York um, as a group to do like rotations, and so. We would see each other all the time um and this was during my surgery rotation actually it was like middle of the surgery rotation where i was already like really feeling burned out because it was a really tough rotation um in the hospital i was doing it but she'll remain unnamed wasn't the most supportive (laughs) environment for students um and so i was just like already feeling burned out and then he you know he just collapsed suddenly like on a on a treadmill and there was like really no like, you know, he was like a healthy guy, was a marathon runner, like, you know, didn't have any, like, didn't do drugs or anything, um, really. And so it was, like, really a shocking moment. And I think from there, initially, I got, it was, like, much worse for me. Like, I think my mental health definitely suffered for a while, but then it also gave me the opportunity to, like, kind of reflect, like, wait, why am I doing this? If I don't do this, what's, like, is this going to be, like, the worst thing in the world? Or like, will I still survive? Will there still be a world here? Like I don't become a doctor, right? Um, and so it took me a, a couple of years to kind of really figure out what it was I wanted to do. And one of the things I realized thinking back was why I enjoyed family medicine was just the ability to uh, just to talk to people, to, to get to know them, to get to know their families, to get to know their kids, and then they bring their kids to you. And like just that generational and community aspect of primary care was something I really was interested in. And so that's why I ended up pursuing family medicine after this, like, and, and I didn't match um, for residency for like three, it took me three, three tries. And so usually that's like puts you in a really tough spot. Um, and so by the time I got there uh, in a residency program, which at the time also wasn't my first choice too. So it was like, I liked it and, but it was in the completely outside of my comfort zone in rural Southwestern Pennsylvania, like you mentioned. Right. And I'm like showing up here three years behind quote-unquote like feeling like I was behind like some of my colleagues who just graduated from ed school and like had the clinical skills that I didn't have and so I yeah I was like really not feeling good about where I was um the in between them the big thing also um that happened that really was a game changer for me was that I met my wife Jen and so like during before um uh, d- during that gap period, I mm-hmm. met her and she also had like a similar, she's a pharmacist. She were, um and so she also like was going through a lot of similar things to me, like kind of like really trying to figure out our place in, in, in this work. And she really encouraged me to go for family medicine. That was something that never came up for me uh, because they are like, because a lot of times, like I heard from my parents, their friends, like, you know, primary care is great, but that's not where you know, it's not as prestigious as, like, becoming a right. cardiologist or a neurosurgeon, like, you know, right? Um, and I think it's a reflection of how society in general looks at, like, preventative care, primary care, right, it's it's kind of, like, not seen in, in the same regard as some of these other profe- um, fields in medicine, so when I finally, with her support, I was like, all right, we're going to go for, I'm going to go for family medicine, I got, got into um, Kanama, and it wasn't my top choice, and I came in, like, already like kind of feeling like i'm really behind but it was in that first year where i realized that hey all it takes is really just putting your head down and putting in the work and the effort and people will see that so it, it, it didn't matter that i didn't have some of the medical knowledge at the time as my other like classmates did a residency mates did i was willing to just like put in the work and learn from like anywhere and everyone <laughs> In the in the in the hospital, right? And that was really an eye-opening experience for me that first year. But it wasn't until my second year when I really, really fell in love with what I was doing and knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And that was when I started working at the free clinic or like doing some electives at the free clinic where my wife was working at the time and really seeing getting that same exposure to public health too i had i had a concept of what public health was but i didn't know what it entailed what it looked like on a like day-to-day basis within the context of also being a doctor uh, or primary care doctor especially and so that was my long-winded way of saying yes i was also public health for me which is <laughs> where i really got interested in 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 what i'm doing now
0: awesome awesome and yeah, again, thank you for, for being so vulnerable and talking about your experiences in med school and with losing your classmate. Um, I really appreciate you opening up about that. Uh, we kind of went all through med school and into residency. I wanna backtrack a little bit and could you just talk about some of the challenges that you had to overcome to get to medical school?
1: Yeah. Um MCAT score for Um it, and and I and I think I again, this is like, I, I'm hoping that it's changing, or it seems like it, at least on the face, it's changing. I don't know if it, like, I guess we'll see what the numbers, right. but I know a lot right. of more focus has been on med school admissions being more holistic, meaning like, not just like your grades and MCAT score. So I'll see it when, believe <laughs> when the numbers back it up, <laughs> then I will believe it. Right. And right. so, but I'm, I'm at least like, we're talking about it. Like, and, yeah. and I think that's important too, because, um, you know I uh, so I will like I kind of mentioned with all this stuff I was in a space where I wasn't completely sure I wanted to be in medical school and I was really struggling to study I did the MCAT classes Kaplan and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and wasn't really didn't have a community either really to like kind of talk about with um, these like you know what all these like internal conflicts I was having at the time and so I think just the MCAT score itself was like the biggest barrier. I also my GPA wasn't amazing. I think I early on in college too, that was the first time I went away. Like I lived outside of home. Um and I definitely <laughs> felt like a lot of like the rebellious nature that a lot of kids do that first year. Um, <laughs> uh, and you feel like you could do whatever and that there's no consequences for anything. And of course there is. And so <laughs> And for me, and you know, for me, there that was those was the grades, and right. so it took a lot of work to bring myself back to a competitive level. <laughs> but I'd, I'd like honestly, I had kind of screwed myself over uh, that first year. Um, but you know, I, and I think about that now too, though, and and I think a lot of that had to do with that internal conflict was there. It just wasn't something I was actually addressing or like putting like oh like you know um, verbalizing even to myself, and so. Right um Those are kind of like the big, the biggest challenges because when if your MCAT score isn't great, if your GPA is not competitive, that really like just screens you out of a lot of opportunities. No matter, and it, and it doesn't even present, give you the opportunity to present yourself as a candidate, right? Because then you're right. like already screened out a lot. So I think those were kind of like the big challenges, um, just getting in.
0: Right. And so you're the first position I have featured on the show that went to a school in the Caribbean. I think a lot of people have perceptions about what that means and what you're able to do afterwards. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, to that?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up too because I think that was also like when we're talking about the medical school challenges, I think that was always the elephant in the room or the chip that a lot of us had on our shoulder. Um, again, I'm hopeful that thing. They- things have changed now because now there's like a generation in the past decade of physicians who are now like attendings and faculty at different institutions and maybe it's more normalized. But I think especially then it was like you were, yeah, you were seen as like second, like you're, even just like you as a someone who could become a physician was seen as like second rate compared to like your allopathic, like your U S graduates. Um, and I think even amongst the DO that I think DO, um, students have been in DO schools sometimes face this too uh, when it comes to like, because we're, we're like kind of think about like these tiers. So there's like the L like there's a U.S. MD schools, then there's like DO schools, then there's like the Caribbean schools. Like that's, I'm just saying like this is how it was viewed, right? And so this is also how it was then um, how people viewed me then on with these hierarchies. Right. And especially like with what I I was telling you with where I wasn't sure about if I was still wanting to be a doctor, I was like really struggling with like mental health. And, you know, I I knew that I wasn't the smartest kid in the room most of the time, like where I couldn't like just, if someone asked a question, like I didn't know it just off the top of my head. But I also knew that, um, you know, there were other things that I could bring to the table that I only discovered later on. So I think with the Caribbean piece of it, I think it was definitely a challenge because I, I remember like being in a rotation at um, now it's uh, Bronx Care. Um, now I'm forgetting what it was Bronx Lebanon it used to be. It was Bronx Lebanon doing a rotation with Einstein students, right? And I was like in my head, I was like, oh man, these students are like so much more smarter than I am. They're much more organized. They have like and like you when you have that sitting in the back of your head, that constant doubt, it definitely makes things much harder. Um, and so I think that was like one of the biggest
0: challenges of, of going to a Caribbean school was, was the perception of it, as you said. Right. Sure. Thank you for sharing that. And again, this, this is my perception. Uh, please correct me if from am if, if this wasn't your experience, excuse me, if this wasn't your experience, but one of the problems that I have is that, you know, from my experience, people kind of regard Caribbean schools as secondary medical schools, but they train the majority of URM physicians, right? Is that is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of URM co- like coming through, again, for various reasons too. I mean, it could be, for me, it was, even though like, I, and I, I think even the, and I'll be honest, like even like when I'm talking about like URM, I never know whether I should put myself in that category. Cause like, I think you talk to different people, it means different things, even right. within act like, Academic medicine, there are specific things um, that like go, like what people see as that category. So, um, you know, like I was, I'm definitely like a person of color, um, but at the same time, you know, I did have like, my dad is a doctor. And so like the, I didn't have the financial barriers. I have different barriers. Um, and so that like kind of like my grades and all that stuff. So I, that's what led me to the Caribbean. But for a lot of people also, it might be more financially. Um, uh, easier or that they don't want to wait like like they can't afford basically to wait a year like because yeah. a lot of the Caribbean schools are rolling admission you get in you get in right um and as was also as a, at a time before there were more do schools like at the like now there's a lot more do schools than there were like a decade ago um so people go for various reasons and the material your material you're learning is still the same <laughs> like right. you know pathology and diabetes it doesn't change right. depending on what medical school you go to it's all the right. same right um i and but i do think that part of yeah and, and i think part of the reason why there is stigma attached to is, is i mean what was difficult for me was that there maybe wasn't as much administrative support i think that a school like Einstein has that for sure um, I think it's something that I I think was was a downside of of the school that I went to. Again, at that time, I don't know how it is now. Um, and you know, and I think that's like a real thing to consider. Um, so I I, I guess it, it's it's really for for that time. But then that I was looking to and seeing that like a lot of the students that I I graduated with, they were easily accepted into like really competitive like residencies, right? And so I I think part of what the last decade has been about is like changing that perception. right? Um, Because so much of what you're doing in medicine is the same regardless of where you are. But I I do
0: think there are differences between the schools, um, but maybe not as much as we think. Sure, thank you for sharing that. Um, So before we spend a good amount of time talking about your specialty, um, I wanna ask you to speak on experiences that you've had at various points in your career, either as a medical student or as a resident, or in your career as an attending where you've either witnessed or personally experienced discrimination? Yeah,
1: no, this is this is a really, I think, important thing to talk about. Um, and I will say again, like I'm a newer physician, meaning like I've only been attending, excuse me, an attending for about five years now. And so there might be people who you've had on your pockets or will who've been like working for much longer, um, but yeah, I think even with uh, within that context, I've worked in a lot of like I've worked in super urban, super rural like suburban hospitals, like many different settings also lived in many different settings. so right. um, I think the how that looks sometimes is different depending on where you are. Um, southwestern Pennsylvania.
0: <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> when you're in
1: southwestern Pennsylvania that can it can look much more in your face and explicit. Sure. Um, but then when you, and then I, um, you know, and then I, but it's not to say that that hasn't happened when I've been in the Bronx. Right. And that's like what the interesting thing is too. where it's maybe not as explicit, maybe it's more implicit, but it's still there. And so like, I can, I, I want to be more specific to like, there, the biggest instances that stick in my head, um, when I was a resident would be like, you know, you get a call from on, you go to the floor, like nurses, like call you to check on a patient, something comes up. And so you're like, okay, so you go, um, you go, I go up to the floor. Usually when you're on call, you're with, uh, like, I, this was when I was already a senior resident. So you, with our, at our hospital, we had a small program. So it was just a senior resident and an intern. And like, that was it. And it was a really good, just as like a side note, it was like, great for learning because it really developed a lot of autonomy. Like I didn't have money people to rely on. Like I had to rely on myself and I had to rely on the intern I was working with. And it was really important to have that kind of trust and partnership. Um so there was one time where I went on the floor and uh, it wasn't the nurse that I had called, it was like another nurse was like, Oh um, uh, oh, Dr. Mohan, uh the patient's in that room for you. It's like I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, what who are we talking about? Yeah. And then and then it's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you're not Dr. Mohan, but you kind of look like him. Um and I I memed this thing at some, cause I sent, I was like, looked up his picture and I was like, I can tell you, it, it is a South Asian man. But, <laughs> nothing
0: nothing like him. About, Yeah, about <laughs> like
1: 30 years older, had, was was rocking like, you know, like a huge stash and like completely different, <laughs> right? Like, and I was just like.
0: <laughs> it's ridiculous.
1: And it was just like, well, yeah, what are you talking about right now? Yeah. And uh, that was, it wasn't the only time that, you know, things like that happened. A lot of times i would be, you know, got plenty of like, hey, Dr. Patel, yeah. Can you do this? Can like, you know, and I had two two of my colleagues were patels again, looked nothing alike. <laughs> the three of us both looked nothing alike and also had like completely different personalities. Um, and so it was also like, you know, it's not even that you can get us confused. Um and so I think th- those were the kinds of like microaggressions too. And at the time I didn't even know what a microaggression was. That's only right. something that only very recently we've been talking about openly. Right. Um but I remember thinking, like, okay, like this, this is this is obviously not cool, and it was also like not really a space that I could kind of talk about it because I think people, when it's something like that, people usually will brush out. oh, they didn't mean it, right? I look mean, like, they didn't mean it. Like, okay, that's fine. But then, how are you going to make sure that doesn't happen again? <laughs> like, you know, because what we were talking about, like, you know, when we talk about like intention versus impact, I think that's right. oftentimes what's lost. It's like, okay, okay, you you didn't intend to hurt anyone here, but you know you definitely like I definitely felt something and yeah. so are you we going to address that or no um and I think as an as, so that was like as a resident I'm trying to think as as a as a med student there most of it was just it was I was just going I was just struggling like kind mm. of I've already talked about it. and so I, I I actually don't even think that a lot of that registered in my head if things did happen because I wasn't thinking about all of, that stuff then um i was just like literally just trying to survive and i also didn't have a i didn't have a language for a lot of that um and so then as an attending often like again it's like a completely different um i'm i'm in the bronx i'm around people that i look like i take care of people that look like me or maybe have shared like cultural similarities colleagues um but you know it still happens and it happens in more subtle ways like you know people may um confuse me for another of my colleagues again um who I will say that we probably personality wise height and all that skin tone we are smaller um but we're also not we're yeah. two different people yeah and often and and oftentimes we do get um confused and I will say like even our patients like sometimes confuse us like and they'll just be like uh, and so this is my, one of my good friends, Dr. Free, Rafael Frias, who's also an Einstein grad. Right. And, and we talk about this all the time. So I feel right. comfortable like just, just saying this openly because right. um also one of the co-founders of the South Bronx Community Health Leader. So like we talk about this all the time, and it's like an inside joke with us, but it it happens so much more frequently <laughs> than you would think. Um, with colleagues, with patients, even. And you know, sometimes you have to laugh, other times it feels more egregious, and it's like, okay, this is like a very clear microaggression. Um. Yeah. And so I, I think it's still one of those things that we're trying to figure out, like, you know, how, how what is the best way to approach these situations, especially when sometimes if you bring it up that people might get really defensive about it,
0: right? Right. For sure. Thank you for that. Um. So now I want to spend some time talking about your specialty. But because you're not the first family health doc, I want you to really, I would like for you to talk really about the Bronx Health Collective and the work that you do in Anti-racism in the workplace, kind of all in that response. So family medicine, sure. Bronx Health Collective, yeah, your work with anti-racism, all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think,
0: like maybe some of your other colleagues have, or the
1: other um, people you've had on. I know I know Robles was on yeah. here too. So like you know, um, for sure, um, what I love about primary care, family medicine in general is again the the community, right? I'm a community physician, like both figuratively and literally like we are our clinic in Bronx Health Collective is literally in the community so we are next to the bodegas we're next to the pharmacies we're next to the housing complexes that people live in and so it's all there right um and so i i love that aspect about being a about being a family medicine physician because you when you are really entrenched like that in the community and people trust you especially if they if communities, many communities like in the South Bronx in particular have like a lot of historic, um, have been historically neglected, marginalized, sometimes on purpose, sometimes just unintentionally, but it still causes harm and really disenfranchise and don't trust a lot of people that they are around in the healthcare system. And so when you can establish yourself in that community and people trust you and look to you, um, I I love that. Um, And I love being able to um you know amplify concerns that people have too like whether it's about our clinic whether it's about the healthcare system whether it's about what's happening around them um so that's just like one of the over overarching aspects of of being a a primary care doc that i really love Um, um specifically with the bronx health collective um the reason why i joined here though i i'm the only, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm the only family doc who, uh, we have on staff now who didn't go through the Montefiore's residency program. So like Dr. Frias, like Dr. Sear, we have all these like amazing colleagues and friends of mine who went through that program. And so they kind of knew a little bit about this program before I didn't know much. (laughs) And I, again, I was coming from Southwestern PA. I wanted to come back home to New York city. Um, and when I was looking up Uh, And this job opening just happened to come up on on one of those like recruitment sites. Um, And so I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting because a lot of the focus that we do is on caring, like providing specific care for marginalized communities, like specifically for families experiencing homelessness um, with terra firma, which is like, you know, focusing on immigrant families. and I think it was that work that I was really drawn to, not that we're the only ones that do it, but I think that in combination with, um, you know, working at and being able to uh, also be faculty at Einstein, um, it felt like a full circle moment for someone, like I was talking to you about as a student, where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to be good enough to be like an Einstein student, right? Like, I, and, and so now I'm like a preceptor for Einstein. I'm doing a podcast with an Einstein student. Right. So it's like a... It's like a very cool full circle moment um so I think that was like one of the biggest reasons and I think where the anti-racism stuff comes in
0: Uh
1: again very recent more recently um when I was in uh my residency program in 2014 you know 2015 that's when like you know Black Lives Matter really was the original originally talked about like you know I was home Uh, for a break I forget which break when the Eric Garner protests were happening in like New York City um you know we uh my wife was doing a uh what do you call the MPH at Hopkins at the time too she had just started in so that was like right around the time when Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore which is only three hours from from where I was uh practicing right um and so all of this was happening in and I was looking around and I was like, wait, what? this is what we do, right? Like do no harm. Is, these are things that we're supposed to talk about. And um at the time there wasn't a lot of that at my program. Just because again, it was it just wasn't on the radar for many programs, <laughs> like you right. know, Einstein included, like at, at that time. Right. Um, it wasn't seen as like this is like essential to being a primary care doctor or pediatrician, or whatever, or just a healthcare professional, right? Regardless of whether you're a doctor or nurse. Right. And so that was really when I started to, to think about like, what could I do on my own? What could our program do? And so like really started talking about these um, issues as a, when I was a residency, when I was a chief resident in my third year. Um and so this was like 2016, 2017. And we also know that that was when it was like the big our big election, right? Like it's I feel like that election s- still has an impact even now, like years sure. later. Sure. Um and so with our recent um and then with COVID. So now fast forwarding to being at the Bronx Health Collective, I was COVID came, like I was three years into the job, right? So COVID has already been over two years, which is hard to believe. But I was I was still relatively young, um, new physician. But I think it was really important. Um, and again, it wasn't just me. Like I don't want to just like make it seem like it was just me doing these things because it was having the colleagues around, like I mentioned, like Dr. Fris, like Dr. Sandhya Kumar, who's um Another one of uh, my DFSM colleagues, Dr. Murthasira, sira Dr. Kim Bui, especially those four at the time, we were all kind of like, we were at, at once bearing witness to what was happening, right? Like you're walking into work and you're seeing food pantries around the block, um, you know, people waiting on food pantries, like wrapping around the block, around the clinic. We were seeing our patients dying, like literally. Um, we were... Then we were hit with all that succession of like killings, like with Ahmaud Arbery, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. Um, and that was just along, it was along the whole line of things that happened before, right? Like Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, like, you know, unfortunately, like so many names. And I think it just, at that moment, it just felt like it was like, there had to be more than just words. And there also, there needed to be action. And there needed to be, and it didn't have to be like, Starting from scratch, and I think that's where I, because I was already connected with the, um, with some of your uh, like you know colleagues who have graduated now, um, like specifically Kristen Williams, who uh, I knew through the South Bronx Community Health Leaders, and she I like you know I was like just let me know, I don't, it's like I don't want to put a burden on you, just like everyone else might be doing. I just want to know what I can do to help or what we can do to help. That's it. Um, and if you can direct me to that, I'll, I'll figure it the rest of it out. And I think that's where. The kind of the idea of like you know of writing a letter of support for the White Coast for Black Lives chapter started, and it yeah. turned into something much larger, um, where it was like, you know, it was just like more like you know, kind of talking about the ways we need to really look at our healthcare system, um, and so along the way we got a lot of support from a lot of different people, both at Einstein at uh, Montefiore former alumni students, um, even, but I think even more so than that, and I talk about this all the time, I was like looking, it somehow it found its way around to like, you know, senior like the hospital and like people who I never would have thought that would right. see this and who supported it. And so I think that was really important for that moment to kind of be like, okay, this is just the start. But like, I think, um, and where we go from here, at that time, it's also a lot of, there was a lot of pressure. Now, two years later, much harder to kind of sometimes push for these things because people are both fatigued, push back, feel like, oh, this is like moving too quickly. Um, But I think all of that being said, it was a really important moment to kind of see like who your allies are, what work needs to be done, even if there's like no response or minimal response or not the response that you want. Um, There there were still those moments kind of seeded future avenues to kind right. of like really participate because i think a lot like things that like came out from it were okay we need the admissions process at einstein to have more people of color or like you know younger physicians whoever it was that's how i got like you know um invited by dr neris benfield one for, like recently just left happy yes. for her sad for einstein but um right right, right 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 you know so it was just like you know this is this is kind of how these things happen and, it, and i don't want it to seem The other reason why I just want to really like break it down, so it's not like some kind of like myth making event. It it doesn't require a lot to. You just have to like just be willing to to put in the work. Like you don't have to be like this extraordinary person, or feel like you have to be this extraordinary person to do it. Because I think you need the support. You need an environment where you can do the work safely, openly, and then you just do it. And there's going to be people there. You're going to see who else. You're going to see you're not alone. And that you can't do this work alone either. And so I think those are really
0: important lessons. Awesome. I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback. I would disagree. I would say you are extraordinary. That's why I invited <laughs> you on the show. I think that, I mean, the, the fact that you make the work seem so accessible and like you just have to put in the time and the energy, I think that's definitely commendable. But I'm not going to let you minimize that. I think, I think <laughs> everything that you guys have done, all of you is, is extraordinary. And, and I think it definitely deserves a shout out. Um but thank you so much. For I appreciate that. all that. Uh, you answered most of the questions that I was going to ask without even me asking. but um what what qualities do you think make the best residents in family medicine? That's a really good question. Um, I think, and I'm gonna
1: actually even throw this to like any resident, like you know, open it up even further to like any resident, maybe if there's like specific family medicine traits. Um, but I think, you have to be willing, there needs to be like a willingness to like learn regardless of where you are, even as if you're an intern, of course, but even as like a second, third year, if you're a surgery resident, like fifth year, like even if you're the chief, like, right. Even, um, even if then you do three years of trauma surgery. So like your eighth year, but just, just saying, Justin, you have many years ahead of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, <laughs> But like, uh, you know, it, it, and, and regardless of what, where you are and where you're coming in as a resident, you have to be willing to like learn. Um, and so one of the lessons that I always came back with the first day of my residency as an intern in this new hospital in this new place, I didn't, and the hospital where I in is not huge. It's like a, again, it's like a community um, hospital. So it, it had like a trauma one level center, a lot of other different things that other hospitals around the area didn't, but it wasn't like huge. But I still remember, like, that first day stepping. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to get to, like, whatever it was, like, this floor. <laughs> and I got, in, I, I got into the elevator, and, like, one of the maintenance dudes was there. And he looked, saw the look of concern on my face. He probably knew about like, like you know, freshman, freshman here. And he's like, what? He's like, <laughs> And he's just like, you know, where, where are you trying to go, young fella? And I was like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I told
1: him, I was like, I don't know how to it here. Like, you know, again, what floor, I don't remember what floor it was. And he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you, there's a shortcut here. You cut through here, it saves you five minutes. You take the stairs, and then that's that. Uh-huh. And I was just like, so grateful. And also, again, like, it was just like such a stark reminder that first day where you can look at every, you always have an opportunity to learn from people. It doesn't have to be your attending. It doesn't have to be another doctor doesn't have to be even a nurse or you know there's like so many things that you can learn along your journey and as long as you're open to it and so it can be and it's and of course of course like this guy he has been working there for 30 years he's going to know the hospital better than anyone else like he's right. you know he has he knows it inside out so why wouldn't I learn from him and I think like just breaking down that hierarchical like view we have I think is like a really important first step um I think other traits are again you Decentering yourself and it's like doing especially in a residency you're in a team like you know right. there are different teams different subsets and things but you're on a team right and i don't like you know i don't like being a team player is like a cliche thing but it's more about like you need to recognize like you know you can succeed you can excel um because at the end of the day this is all about like the patient care this is about like you know making sure that you're all learning what you need to be learning so that you're successful in the future um and there's going to be times where it's not going to be equal for sure. Like there might be times where someone is struggling and you have to pick up uh, for them, and there's going to be times where you're struggling and then someone else is going to pick up for you. Right. And so you and <laughs> this is also uh, kind of like what marriage is like. <laughs> so <laughs> as, as, as and like you know and like you know you can't there. This is something I talk about with my wife all the time where you can't always and we recognize this early on too, which was important that like there's going to be times again where it's going to be a super busy month for me and that she's going to have to pick up a lot of the slack and there's going to be other times where I have to, especially now with the kid. Right. And so I think even that quality, I think is important as a residency, like, cause, so what that being a team player actually means to me, like that's what it means in those words. And I think specifically for family medicine, if you, um, I think you have to, you, you play such a central role in the system, even though people, many people don't recognize it. And so like, that's, a reality that you just have to be okay with <laughs> because what you're doing is important. Right. And I think so specifically it's helpful to I say that because it's important to recognize that because that's also what kind of can cause burnout when people feel like, oh my God, they want me to address these 10 issues. The specialist keeps throwing this back to the PCP, say something like, you know, see PCP for this and that. And then you don't have social services to offer to patients because of where you live or what their insurance is. And so a lot of it is like very, can feel very frustrating. But you are, um, if you are willing to um, really like lean into that level of like, you know, discomfort and understand that you are playing like a really crucial life, um, a crucial um, role in someone's life, because, you know, people will say, I talk to like my partner, I talk to my kids and I talk to my doctor. <laughs> like, and when they mean by the doctor is their primary doctor. Right, right. Or, right. Uh, or who, whoever functions. For some people, like, I mean, people who have like really severe cardiac disease, their primary doctor is basically their cardiologist, right? Like, And so I wanna recognize that too. Like some right. people are like that. Right. But generally it means like their doctor. And so like you are filling this role in, in, in this person, in this family's life, whether it's kids, whether it's adults, whether it's the grandparents, um, that, very few people probably get insight into this person into this family. And so you have to be willing to like accept that.
0: so thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I want to end the call talking about mentorship. So to start, could you talk about the role mentorship has played in allowing you to get to where you are today in your career? I will say, like, oh,
1: you know based on a lot of what we've been talking about, I think looking back now, it would have been great to, to have a mentor early <laughs> on. I didn't have a mentor for a very long time. Right. I think maybe if I did, it would be a little bit different. Um, you know, and I, and I think it's different too. Like, you know, they're like, Oh, well, your dad is a doctor. Why aren't you like, why is it human? And I think it's, it's different. Like, you uh, know, this just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm it laughing went, this is yeah? exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You know, like it's, and I think, um, I think especially too, because it was at the, like now we, like he sees what I'm doing. He's like very proud and like he's like really recognizes like w- what it is that I'm bringing to like the healthcare field. I think at the time it was also hard just again because of like what does primary care actually do? Like what is it? He didn't realize that like, again, like that's part of why I didn't know like he could do all this like activism and advocacy and like different kind of public health work. Um, so I, I think you know, when it's your family, it's always, that's, that, it's always hard. And I think like definitely having him there, um, helped in many ways, especially like if I was got in touch with, like if he put me in touch with a family physician or something like that. Um, and other times it was just hard, um, just because it's hard to have a mentorship, professional mentorship relationship with someone who's your dad or any (laughs) relative or any, any relative really. Um, so that is, I just want to mention that because I think just that being said, um, it's strictly professionally i didn't really have any mentors um really until very recently and so i i think a lot of people I I, I I get envious of this i'm like oh i'm just gonna call my mentor and it's like someone they've known for like 10 15 years and so i don't have someone like that but again like and i these conversations i have i, get, I often get a lot of wise advice from my wife jen and when i was telling her this like this was like a couple a few years back so maybe like i was two years into this into this role and I was just like I don't I don't feel like I have like people I can talk to or like I don't know what like mentorship look looks like and she's like yeah but you have this and that was around the time when we started South Community Health Leaders right and she was like saying well well you have people like you know Juan Robles who's like a near-peer mentor right like he's like someone who's a a few years, um, he's done this for a few years more than you haven't. So maybe not someone you typically think of as like a mentor, but like, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. It's like a near peer mentor. And that's part of like what EFAM does too, right? Like with, um, with our students. Right. Um, and then, and then my peer mentors, like, again, like people like, um, Dr. Frias, Dr. Kumar, like, I think I turn to them a lot for a lot of questions. Um, a lot of, not just like as friends, but also as like colleagues. And so I think, That was, I think, part of the reason why I wanted to co-found that um, our SBXHL group was because I think having mentorship can be so profound. The earlier, the better, but even regardless of where you are, at some point, um, it can be really helpful just to have that person or people. um, It doesn't just have to be one person, right, who not only can, like, give you, like, life advice professional advice but also like can help keep you in check like you you need that person that's going to just be like 100 with you and straight up with you and say like hey you're messing up here or if that's not the case like hey i I think you should i think you should like you know go for this opportunity and you're selling yourself short um and so i think that especially for urm who are trying to get into a field um healthcare fields that are like so competitive is even now i think having that mentorship having space for camaraderie having the space for um talking through these issues i think is like really really um crucial to like your success not only getting to medical school but the residency as and then as an attending and th- that learning never ends and i think that's like also the important part of mentorship that i have picked up to like it's, it's going to be a lifelong journey and you can, and the other side of it too, is like you can be mentored by people who are younger than you as well. I feel like the students are sometimes mentors for me too, not just like around TikTok and other like social media stuff, but just like, you know, just like in real, real life stuff right. as well. And right. I think you just have to be willing to look at mentorship through the prism of not just being like this one old person,
0: like, sure. quote, like, you know, that you, that for sure, like you can look back on. It can be, could be different, different forms. For sure. And especially pertinent because of your role with the South Bronx community health leaders, what kind of qualities do you think make the best mentees, people that are looking for a mentorship?
1: Yeah, I think, again, very similar. Um, I think people who are, are willing to learn and kind of willing to really reflect on where they are um, and be honest with themselves. Like I think being like very emotionally aware, I think is helpful for both parties. But I think especially if someone is looking for mentorship, you have to really be willing to be uncomfortable with you know like if, if there's if there's things that you are missing about like like especially around work. Like if there are things that you could do better, and you really want that honest advice, you have to be willing to to take it. Right. Um, or if there, are, or if there are things that where someone feels like, hey, no, again, you have all the skill sets, you can do this. Um, just like taking that advice and and trusting the mentor or your or the mentors goes a long way. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a big one. I think just like honestly, like just being being willing to. And even if, if the advice is like something that you weren't expecting, or it's like completely outside of the box, I think being willing to trust the person can go a long way. Because then that opens up with different avenues. Um, and then eventually, if you are a mentor in the future, that like gives you like this. It also helps build a skill set for you, and like, where it's like, why did why did this person suggest this? Right. It's the, sometimes
0: that's as, as important to understand as the advice itself. Awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, I really appreciate everything that you had to share. I would like to end the episodes with three quick questions. So first, regardless of specialty interests, what's one book you think every student interested in medicine should read? Yeah, that's, that's
1: a really good question. I, um, Actually, I haven't thought about this in a while, and I don't know if it's, like, where it falls on, like, the problematic scale, but House of God was one, I think, uh, that really, it, it's, it's like a wild book, and yeah. I really enjoy just, like, reads that are really imaginative and surreal, like, yeah. surrealist stuff, and so yeah. it also... It, feel like it still cuts to the same core of like the frustrations that people have with the system while you're a part of the system and right. so I, I really I think everyone should read that before they are whether it's not in medical school I think maybe before residency because I think that's where it's like you know it's written from that perspective so I think everyone should read that at some point. Right.
0: So I read House of God before I started med school I read it this summer before I started and definitely problematic but also like I, I think <laughs> there's still some very pertinent points about um, the hierarchy of medicine um, a lot of issues with burnout among residents um there's a yes. lot there's a lot of very real issues and again, the book is fifty sixty years old at this point, so yeah. it was a very different social context and it was problematic then it's problematic now, but I, I think that there's definitely some important takeaways so thank you for that uh second, what is one resource you think all underrepresented premed students should access or be familiar with. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's also a good question too. I I think the the resources that you have where you are, like so SNMA, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you guys a shout out right there. Like you have your you have allies and you have colleagues, regardless of what institution you're at, and that's who you should seek out. Like, and sometimes that's hard, um, but I think because uh, you don't know about them. But I I think l- looking. I think that's like if you don't know who they are, if they exist, like just looking for that right. kind of organ, like, you know, that whether it's like an organization or, or a club. And if it doesn't exist, then you start a chapter, right. like, you know, in wherever you are. And so I think that's like sometimes like the, the most basic thing, but I think just knowing who you are. And I think, um, yeah,
0: I'll, I'll just I'll leave it there. For sure. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, what advice do you want to leave with underrepresented students pursuing medicine?
1: Yeah. Um, I always love this question because there's just so much, (laughs) not enough time. (laughs) Right. Um, but I think, I I think the biggest thing is there is support. There's support here for you, um, regardless of where you are. But, and I think, you know, social media and internet now gets like a lot of, um, you know, it gets a bad rap understandably because of where it's kind of gone and like what it's allowed in many senses but i think again regardless of where you are you have access to a community whether it's a community in person where it's a community online um in 2022 there are people who are going through what you are going through and so like i think just the fact that you don't have to be alone in your journey is like really should be empowering it should feel should make you feel hopefully less isolated less lonely uh, because it can be a lonely process and so I think people are talking about mental health now. And I think part of that is because of like, you know, kids in your generation and the younger Gen Z generation who are like really talking about these things openly. I think it's like super important. I think that's going to ultimately have a really positive impact on people who are pursuing, on URM pursuing careers in medicine.
0: And there you have it from the goat himself, Dr. Kadir. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much. (laughs) This has been an awesome episode um you know special thank you because i know you you do so much between the clinic and between your teaching responsibilities and your responsibilities as a parent to a young father so i really really appreciate you making the time to do this and to, to you know share your story and share your truth on this episode i think it's been phenomenal you have anything you want to say no just again thanks for thanks for having me on i'm glad you're having these conversations and um i'm looking working i'm looking forward to working with you next awesome and there you have it. That'll conclude this episode of the Med Mentor podcast. Until next time, remember to keep inspiring by example. Peace.